Thank you, Steve. Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors here. As you may have guessed, we're in the middle of a series in Romans 8. In fact, we're actually going to finish up that series today. These are the last few verses here. But uh, every year, it seems that thousands of books are published to teach us not, uh, you know, how to love, right? And we buy them because we want to know not only how to love, but what is it about someone else? Like, what makes a person lovable? Now, many of you know that before I came to Shelbyville, uh, my wife Jackie and I worked with, with college students. And college students think a lot about love. So one time we were doing a series on love, I asked these students to identify, you know, the qualities that they would look for in someone they would want to marry, and I started with the young women, and so they told me they were attracted to tall, good-looking, well-mannered, godly men who love children, who listen with sincerity and have a really good sense of humor. They must also be honest, humble, generous, kind, thoughtful and muscular, and it helps if they are also great dancers and drive a nice car. Then I surveyed the young men, and they said they were attracted to anyone who isn't looking for someone who is tall, good-looking, well-mannered, or who drives a nice car. Basically, that anyone that would agree to go out with them would be just fine. Now, the reason I say this is because we love, we're drawn to success, right? We're drawn to tall, we're drawn to good looking. But the problem comes in when we assume that God loves in the same way that we do. Now we're smart enough to know, right, that God isn't looking for tall, good looking dancers who drive nice cars. But that doesn't mean that we understand what God finds attractive, See, we tend to believe that God loves good, successful people who follow all the rules and are kind and respectful of others. And we believe that God loves people who demonstrate, you know, character and commitment. And then we work really hard to become the sort of people that we hope that God would love or God could love. But what if God already loves you? What if God is actually attracted to things like weakness and brokenness? Like, what if instead of being attracted to strength and success and how hard we try, what if instead God was actually drawn to our weakness? And this idea begins to make sense when you read through the Bible and you start to notice the sort of people that God was attracted to. Let me give you some examples. Jacob was a liar and a cheat. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. David was an adulterer and a murderer. This is one of the reasons I say that, listen, the Old Testament characters weren't given to us to emulate. They were given to us to demonstrate our need for a Savior. And so, you know, when people want to move to this, hey, we need to have the strength of Goliath or the strength of uh, Samson, you know, and the, the courage of David, they are, they are taking, they're just, that's a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. Okay, so let's keep going. Uh, so, and, that, and listen, and that list, friends, could be a lot longer. I could be on that list. And so could you. 
But thankfully, we have a God who is attracted to weakness. I love the way Jim Cimbala puts it. He says this in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. He says, I discovered an astonishing truth. God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. And even here in Romans 8, we've been told that creation is weak and frail, that creation isn't functioning the way it God intended, that we have bodies that groan, we have bodies that are weak, but that in our weakness, the, the Holy Spirit of God moves toward our weaknesses and prays for us in ways that we can't even imagine and we've also been told that in our brokenness Jesus intercedes for us straight from the right hand of God friends God loves us not in our success not in our strength but in our weakness in our brokenness and this week it gets even better what we're going to discover this week is that we don't have to become a certain kind of person that God would find lovable, but that if you're in Christ, God already loves you. Look at this, Romans 8, 35. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... So he's getting ready to quote a psalm here. This is Psalm 44, and he's going to apply this psalm to Christians. And he says, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We're being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So this means that sometimes what Paul is saying is that sometimes Christians will be killed simply because they are Christians. So one of our mission's partners around the world is World Renewal. and um, I've been told recently a couple of stories that actually come out of World Renewal that I want to share with you. So there was a, a few, uh, three or four years ago, there was a 16-year-old boy walking down the Bible, carrying his down the street, ca in, carrying a Bible in a country where Christianity is illegal. And he was caught doing this, and the authorities arrested him. They place him in jail, and because he's a minor, his father has to come and serve the majority of his sentence. And one of the penalties for this crime is actually death. So COVID hits, the court systems in this country get bogged down, they bring this 16-year-old kid in and they say, we want you to denounce your faith. If you will denounce Christ, we will let you go for time served. Just be done with him. This young man says, I will never do that. Absolutely not. Now remember, one of the penalties for this is death. So world renewal, her, here's this story. They hire an attorney to represent this family. They show up for the sentencing. And the judge simply dismisses this young man's case. The attorney uh, who operates in this country says he's never seen this happen before, but this judge just let this young man know. Uh, I just heard another story where a man becomes a Christian, again, in a country where Christianity is illegal, and he's turned in for being a Christian by his wife. He goes to jail 
for being a follower of Jesus. Later, his wife gets to thinking about it. She goes back to the jail. She gets her husband out. She says, I love you. I love the stand that you're taking. I want to be with you. Let's renew and let's rebuild our marriage. This is what it means to be sheep led to the slaughter in countries where Christianity is illegal. And I also want you to know, notice the words that Paul uses in these verses. He uses the word tribulation. That means troubles and trials of all kinds. He uses the word distress. That's stress caused by danger or threats or worry. He talks about persecution, which is active opposition from enemies of the gospel. He talks about famine. This is shortages of things like food or water. Now, why is Paul using terms like this? It's so important to understand this, friends, because what Paul is saying is that Christ's love does not eliminate our suffering. Christians are still going to go through these kinds of things. But he is also saying that this suffering cannot and will not separate us from the love of Christ. And here's why I think this matters so much. What's the first thing that happens when something hard blows into your life or into my life? What's one of the first things that people do? They begin to question the love of God. And Paul is saying, look, the fact that we live in a, a fallen world, in a world that does not operate in the way that God originally intended, does not mean that Jesus doesn't love you. And then he goes on and makes one of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture. He says this in Romans 8.35. No, in all these things, what things? Things like distress and persecutions and trials. In those kinds of things, we are not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I want to ask a great question. What does it mean not just to be a conqueror, but to be more than a conqueror? And I would argue this, that a conqueror defeats his enemy, but a more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purposes of his enemy, but a more than a conqueror turns his enemy towards the purposes of God. A conqueror might strike down his enemy, but a more than a conqueror makes his enemy his foe, his slave. Now, I want you to notice that in this list Paul goes through, affliction is one of the enemies. And Paul talks about this in another location. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Here's what he says about affliction. He says, our momentary light affliction... Now, why does he say it like that, momentary and light? The reason is because he's getting ready to compare our temporary afflictions with the glories that are going to be revealed in and to and through us. So he's comparing now with eternity. And so he says, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So let me just tease out with you how it is 
that Paul has taken the enemy, in this case it's affliction, and he's become more than a conqueror. In this case, affliction is actually serving a good purpose in Paul's life. It has been taken captive. It has been enslaved and made to serve Paul's very best interest. Affliction, which is the enemy, is preparing for Paul an eternal weight of glory. Paul has not only conquered that enemy, he has more than conquered that enemy. And then he continues just with such poetry, and he's going to speak in pairs. And so we'll walk through each of these pairs and talk about each one individually but let's read through the rest of the verse for I am persuaded or we know that neither death nor life angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is so interesting to me he, be- he begins this way he says I'm persuaded that neither death nor life will be able to separate us from the love of God. Why would he start with death? Well, because death has always been our most urgent threat. Death has always been humanity's greatest foe. And Paul wants us to know that even in death, that death itself does not represent a lapse in the love of God. He wants us to know that when Christ died, he secured his followers in both death and in life. See, in other words, there's nothing in death and there's nothing in life that can undo the triumph of Christ's resurrection from the dead. And then the next pair is this. He says, nor angels or rulers will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now a little later in this list Paul also uses the word powers. So since angels are mentioned in the first uh, section those both of those words are probably being used to represent the forces of darkness. So what he's saying here is there is no supernatural power that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's no angel that can do that. There's no demon that can do that, no matter how powerful. In fact, when we do baptism services here on Sundays, I'll often read Colossians 2.15. And it says that God has actually disarmed the rulers and the authorities, these powers of darkness, and he's disgraced them. He disgraced them not privately, but publicly by triumphing over them through the cross. And then Paul goes to another pair. He says, so I'm convinced not an angel nor a demon can separate us from God's love. But, and I'm furthermore, nothing in the present Or nothing in the future can separate us from the love of God. He's saying, look, there is nothing in time. We are secure in God's love today, and we are secure in God's love tomorrow. Whatever might come tomorrow. Now, do you know what worry is? Worry is obsessing over tomorrow. Or obsessing over what will happen tomorrow so maybe just maybe learning how to rest in the love of God is one of the antidotes to worry then Paul says 
not only nothing in the present or future can separate us from the love of God, he says, I'm also convinced that neither height nor depth will be able to separate us from the love of God. What Paul's saying here is, look, there's no place you can go to avoid the love of God. There's no place you can go to hide from God's love. There's no place you can, uh, you know, yeah, you're kept, for his, you're kept in his love no matter where you are. And then just in case he missed something, Paul concludes with this. He says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. No animal, no thing, no person can separate us from the love of God. Not even things like spiders and snakes, though I know that some of you don't really believe that, right? Now listen, sometimes you can lose sight of the forest for the trees. So what I want to do now is I want to back up and I want to just note a couple of things that Paul is saying that would get lost when we did that deep dive. Uh, What Paul is saying is that the antidote to all of the pain and suffering of our world is the love of God. It is the way forward. It is the way through. The love of God. Now, friends, I don't know how people who aren't experiencing or living out of the love of God cope at all. Like like in all the pain, all the suffering, right, of our world, there are people that have to try to muddle their way through that without the love of God. And many of those people are your friends. They're some of your family members. They're people that you work with. And so what I'd like every one of us to do is I'd like you to call, to just think the name of someone you know who's not a follower of Christ. So they're living apart from the love of God. I want you to think of their name, and then what I'm going to do, as you're thinking of their name, I'm going to pray for them. And so we're going to be praying for literally hundreds of people that they would come to know the love of God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and that, that that they would have minds open to pressing into Him. Because friends, really, I don't know how they do it. I don't. I don't know how they do it even for just a day. But they have to. And so let me uh, just pray for them as you think of who that needs to be. So God, right now, we just lift up, I mean, hundreds of names. You know, hundreds of people. God, I don't know probably most of those people, but God, you know every one. You know every name. You know their story. You you would long to share your love with them if they would only open their hearts and their minds to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask that there would come a day that every man and woman that we're lifting up right now, a day when they would come to know your grace, your mercy, and your love. God, we pray that they would have hearts and minds that would be shaped and transformed and changed and that they would grow to love you and that you would would become their hope and their help and their strength. 
And God, I pray for the men and women sitting in these seats today. I pray that you would use them. God, that that your love would be so different in the men and women sitting in this room that these friends would notice that, that they would take notice and that they would want what the people in this room have that they'd hunger for it, that they would thirst for it, and that they would reach out and speak the name of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so, God, we just ask you to begin that mighty work today. And I pray, God, that you would supernaturally enlighten the men and women in the room with the right opportunity, the right word, the right prayer that they could offer to their friend, the right invitation, whatever it might be. So God, we ask you to take this and use it to impact hundreds of lives here in Shelby County, Indiana. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So that's the first observation, right? The antidote to pain and suffering in our world is the love of God. The next thing I'd like you to notice um, is that Paul said today that we are more than conquerors. I want to zero in on that phrase because the reality is some of us that sounds like a nice sentiment but we're not really experiencing that. You know that doesn't resonate with our spirit and so I want to answer I want to spend the rest of our time together talking about how it is that ordinary men and women become more than conquerors and the answer is you grow into it you engage with God day after day after day after day Uh, so a few years back uh, the dominant interest of most six-year-olds here in the United States was a television show called the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers anybody remember that show Mighty sure yeah Uh, And if you remember, the key to the show's appeal was the ability of each of the characters to morph or change or transform from normal teenagers into heroes of justice. And their rallying cry, can anybody tell me what their rallying cry was when they they were just fed up and they needed to, to change? What would they say? Yeah, it's morphin' time, right? That's what they would say. Now, um, by the way, in the first service, I said that not only was it a bad television show, it was a terrible television show, and I was immediately surrounded by angry 30-somethings, right? So, I know, so I'm not going to say it was terrible in this, uh, you know, in this uh, audience like I said it was in the first. It was just kind of bad. Is that more tolerable to you 30-somethings? Okay, good. I know, I know. So, but here's the thing. It's not just six-year-olds who want to morph. The desire for transformation lies deep within every heart in this room. And here's what's so cool. This little word morph actually has a really long history. It actually comes from one of the richest Greek words in the New Testament. Uh, Morpho, which is the Greek word, means the inward and real transformation of the heart 
and the mind. That's what it means. So a little later in the book of Romans, in Romans 12, for example, where Paul says, I want you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's this word, morpho It's a derivative of the exact same word. Who knew the mighty Morphin Power Rangers were Christians? I never knew. I had no I had no idea, right? Now, here's what this means. This means that churches should just traffic in life change. This means the goal of everything that we do here, everything we ask you to do here, is to shape and transform you, transform your heart and transform your mind so that you are becoming more and more and more and more like Jesus. Now you may ask, well, how does that happen? How, how does a man or a woman become more like Jesus? I mean, what does that look like? Well, I'm just so glad that you asked that question because I have an answer. It's the difference between what I would call training and trying. So here's a verse. Train yourself in godliness. Some versions say it this way. Train yourself to be godly. Now, the key to the Christian life, if you want to become more than a conqueror, is found in training and not in just trying. And, and we, we know, every one of us in the room, that people that do extraordinary things those people train to do those things. I mean, they don't just sit on the, at home on their couch and say, one day I'm going to become an Olympic gymnast. No, they become an Olympic gymnast by a training regiment, right? Um, so let me ask a question. How many of you in the room think that you could run a marathon, that's 26 miles and change, just by trying? No training. Anybody? Any takers? Yeah, me neither. Yeah, I don't think you can. And the Christian life is often likened to a sporting event or to a race. And uh, every one of us in the room understands the importance of training if you're going to do something that's extraordinary or really, really hard. And friends, it's no different in the Christian life. Your spirit is no different in this regard than your body. So here's how Jesus talked about it, and then we'll tease it out. John 15, 4, Jesus said this, Remain in me. And I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. Some versions use the word abide, abide in Jesus, remain in Jesus. This means to stay close to Jesus, to stay tethered to Jesus, to draw from Jesus. Uh, really, really a big deal. And so I'm going to answer this, ask this question. How does a man or a woman remain in Jesus? Well, it's through something. In other words, the training regiment is through something called the spiritual disciplines. 
spiritual disciplines. Now, a spiritual discipline is any activity that you do to stay rooted and tethered to Jesus. It is any activity that gives you the ability to begin to look more and more like Jesus. And it's different than just trying to look more and more like Jesus. It's huge. So I'm going to tease out what a training regimen for a growing Christian should look like. What it, what it would look like for you to become more than a conqueror. So the first thing is this. We know this. Research tells us this now. That people that are in their Bible at least five days a week are going to be growing. They're not going to stall out. That being in God's Word regularly, at least five times a week, is the biggest indicator of whether someone is going to continue to grow spiritually and whether they're going to become more than a conqueror. And this is why we teach the Bible. This is why we ask you over and over again, read your Bibles. But guess what? I can't read your Bible for you. Only you can do that. This is why we offer small groups that when people gather together, they gather around the Word of God. There is something about God's Word that transforms the way we think and the way that we feel. It's so important. So that's a spiritual discipline. So here would be another spiritual discipline. Developing an active prayer life, engaging with Jesus, learning how to have a conversation with Jesus all throughout your day. Like you're just always in conversation with Jesus, right? Just, just again, it's learning dependency on Him, learning how to draw from Him, learning how to live surrendered to Him. So praying is a spiritual discipline. Servanthood, serving other people, becoming less so that other people can become more is a spiritual discipline. See, so when we ask you to serve, we don't ask you to serve just because because we have needs or because people need you to serve them. We ask you to serve because you need to serve in order to become and look more like Jesus. I mean, Jesus himself said, right? Hey, the Son of Man, me. Son of Man's a phrase he took from the book of Ezekiel for the Messiah, and he applied it to himself. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served. No, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So see, you need to be serving. And then solitude. Some of you are like, what? Listen, solitude is the scaffolding of the Christian life. So this is Henry Nouwen. Here's what he says about solitude. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. I have no friends to talk to, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract, no movies to watch. Just me, naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. But it is this nothingness that I have to face in my solitude. See, this is why you hate so much having nothing to do. This is why some of you always look for the next thing to entertain or the next high or the next party or the next movie or the next big thing. 
because you can't stand what it feels like to be quiet before the Lord. Solitude is what trains us to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Solitude is what teaches us to to dial in to the Holy Spirit. Listen, if your life is constantly hurried and constantly noisy, you're going to probably never, ever learn how to hear from the Holy Spirit. So solitude, worship. You know, Brandon just talked about a worship night. Listen, there's a reason we would say to you, you need to be here in Mass every single Sunday because worship transforms the way that people think and the way that they feel. Worship takes people that are entitled and that are self-serving and makes them grateful and makes them loving. Worship is transformational, see? And then getting into community with other people where, listen, can, can we pull, can we throw up our, uh, uh, yeah, there it is. So you see that there's a reason that we have a circle on our logo. There's a reason for that. Because we believe that people learn better in circles than they do in rows. We believe that when people get into groups and have conversations, that those conversations foster not only better understanding of one another, but better understanding of God. And so that's, a, that's meant to represent a group of people that aren't, that aren't facing me. You're not all facing me. No, you're facing one another. Because we believe people learn better in circles than in rows. And I want you to notice those are joyful people. They're people with their hands up. They're, they're worshiping together. They're excited to be together. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it here. You know, so, so you're here and you're like, well, pastor, I mean, you're preaching to the crowd because I, like I am here. Okay, well, let's, let's just tease this out a little bit. So you're, you're here today, right? But I mean, let's face it, right? So uh, you're going to probably have three Sundays a year where it's a snow day. So you're not here on those Sundays. There's probably six Sundays a year where you're out on some sort of a holiday, right, or traveling in a way. So you're not here then. You're going to probably have a couple, two or three Sundays where you're sick and can't come to church, right? Then you're going to have the Sundays where you just feel so overwhelmed that the last thing you want to do is come to church. So you take a sick day, right, from church. So you're getting my point, right? That even if you think you're here all the time, you're not. And that's okay. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to heap on you. I'm just saying, look, it's important that God's people gather regularly. It's a spiritual discipline that is transformative because it's morphing time. Just checking to see if you were listening. Yeah, so, you know, spiritual disciplines, right? And then, so Jesus has said, remain in me, remain in me. How do you do that? You train. How do you do that? You train, you engage in the spiritual disciplines, and those disciplines begin to transform you. You're not transformed because you tried. You're transformed because you trained. And then look what else Jesus says. Last thing, we're going to land the plane on this one. He says, 
Don't just remain in me. Remain in my love. Remain in my what? Remain in my what? Remain in my love. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. And then He goes from love to joy. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete, full, over the top. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, I want you to notice that he doesn't say love one another the way that you would want to be loved. This is a raise the bar kind of love. He says, no, I want you to love one another the way that I loved you. How did Jesus love them? He gave himself up. He lost his life for them. And that's the kind of love that Jesus is calling you and that he's calling me to in this church, in this family, in whatever group you're going to be a part of to come. And let me just say this about the love of God. The love of God, I said earlier, right, that the way forward in a world filled with suffering and pain is the love of God. It is the antidote. And the the love of God in your life is meant to be a river, not a reservoir. See, in other words, some of us think that we, you know, we want to steal away, we want to, we want to soak in or draw in the love of Jesus. Oh, and it's just so good. Thank you, Jesus. That is not what God has in mind. That's the reservoir model. The love of God, you're meant to soak in it so that when you walk out into the world, the love of Jesus flows through you like a river to other people. The love of God is not just something that you and I collect. It's something that we share. It flows. It moves. And as it does, men and women will stand up all over this city, all over the world, and they will take notice of that kind of love. And now here's the bad news. And I'm going to say this as gently as I can and in the hopes I don't offend you, but I'm probably going to offend some of you anyway. You don't have that love in you. You don't have it. And neither do I. This is why it's so important to remain in Jesus, to stay tethered to Jesus. I say this all the time. None of you would like me apart from Jesus. My wife doesn't like me apart from Jesus. Because here's what starts to happen in me when I start to, you know, when I'm not abiding or remaining in Jesus. I begin to get critical. I begin to get impatient. I begin to get resentful. I mean, just just when I'm in my own head, right? And I say this too. Listen, Jesus, I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't just save me from my sin. He saved me from myself. Notice too, oh, I already said that. Now, one of the ways 
that we love each other around here is small groups. You may have noticed that Sunday mornings, no matter what church you attend, they are not set up well to help people love one another. Why? Well, because everybody's facing me, right? We're not doing a lot of, there's not a lot of conversating. Is that even a word, conversate? Anyway, there's not a lot of conversation going on, right? Uh, so that's why we gather through the week in groups so that people can be face-to-face and uh, they can begin to grow and they can love one another. See, small groups for us are our laboratory for everything. They're where we learn how to pray and be prayed for. They're how we learn how to love and be loved. They're, they're, they're how we learn how to care and to be cared for. They're how we learn how to challenge and be challenged. They're, they're, they're how we learn how to grow. And you, know, you get the idea, right? It just kind of goes on and on and on. And so what I want to do is um, we're going to actually get out a little early today. We're going to actually give you time. Um, and we're, but we're going to give you an opportunity to actually sign up today for small groups. But before we do that, I just want you to check out, remember I said that churches should traffic in life change? I mean, there's, you know, people should be being transformed all the time. So I want you to listen on your screen as just people talk about how they've been changed and transformed through their involvement in small groups. Check out your screen. <laughs> 